Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. On a fog-shrouded morning, July 4th, 1952, a young woman named Florence Chadwick Um, Born in San Diego, born and raised in San Diego, learned at a young age that she liked swimming and competing, but not in swimming pools. She liked swimming and competing out in the ocean water. And so growing up in San Diego, she would swim the San Diego Channel and around Point Loma and over in that area and compete. On this particular day, on July 4th, 1952, very foggy day. She stepped into the water off the coast of Catalina Island. Her intention was to swim across to the California coast. If you're not aware of how many miles that is, it's 22 miles. I think about just swimming across the side, the small part of a pool, and I get winded. (laughs) 22 miles she was going to do that. So she stepped into the water with that intention. After 15 hours of swimming... Seeing nothing but fog, and the water was extremely cold, her body began to fatigue and cramp, and she began asking those who were in the boats around her, overseeing the swim, she began asking if they would take her out of the water. Her trainer, as well as her father, were trying to encourage her. They, they just knew that they weren't that far, but they, nobody could see land because of the fog. She, um, she decided she was done. She was going to call it quits, and they pulled her out of the water. They just went a little bit further the f- out of the fog, and they were only a half mile from her goal, from the coastline. Later, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. So you see, it wasn't the cold or fear or exhaustion that caused Florence Chadwick to fail. It was the fog. Now, again, she wasn't new to swimming these kind of distances in the ocean. She has already, previous to this, swam the English Channel twice, both ways, from England to France and then France to England. Not all of us on the same day, of course, but she had done that. So she's familiar with these kind of swims. It was two two months after this particular failure that Florence Chadwick once again walked into the water out of Catalina Island and swam the 22 miles, setting a world record for swimming to the coast of California. I share this story because I think many times we too come up short and fail. Not because we're afraid or because of the peer pressure or because of anything other than the fact that we have lost sight of our goal. Paul, no wonder he says in Philippians, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so it is with the knowledge of God. There are many distractions that leave us in a fog, really. It is vitally important that the believer not lose sight 
of the one great goal that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, that of knowing our God, of knowing Him um, personally, of, of growing in the knowledge of Him more and more and more. Paul had just declared in the first half of chapter 1, which we covered in the last couple of weeks, the eternal plan of God for the world and for his people. It is crucial, and Paul wants everybody to know, which would include us this morning, crucial that believers come to know the God of this very plan that we have looked at. That we know the God of this plan in the most, as I've been saying, up close and personal kind of way. Not just know about him, but know him personally. I've titled this message this morning, The Greatest Connection Ever, because it seems to me that it is what Paul is wanting to get across to us since he mentions our being in Christ, or similar terms, nine times alone in this first chapter. For the follower of Jesus, the first step in understanding who you are is understanding who Christ is. Does that make sense? Understanding who you are begins with understanding who Christ is. You see, I think there are those who struggle having a fulfilling, meaningful walk with God because oftentimes their head can be full of misconceptions about who God is and what He does. Those who believe in a weak, ineffective God, you know what? They're going to live weak, ineffective lives. This is why in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1, where we are this morning, Paul prays for their and our spiritual clarification and insight. He's showing us how to get and stay connected to God, how to go beyond mundane, surface religious existence into a vital, vibrant spiritual experience in the presence of the living Creator God. So let's take a look at what Paul has to pass on to us, and we're going to pick it up at verse 15 where we left off last week. It says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so what Paul begins with here is a prayer of thanksgiving, and then we're going to look at, at the several the different parts that are part of this prayer. But first of all, he, he just mentions how thankful he is for the Christians in Ephesus and for what he has heard about them. Now, how many remember that last week I mentioned, or the week before, that in this first chapter from verse 3, to verse 14 is one sentence in the original language, okay? In the original language, from verse 3 all the way to verse 14, one sentence. You, you might remember me saying, not only is it the longest sentence in the Bible, it is also believed to be the longest sentence in all of ancient Greek literature. That's a pretty long sentence, don't you think? 
Well, here now, beginning at verse 15, Paul is going to offer up a prayer. And the prayer lasts all the way to verse 23. Okay? And so it's a prayer. He begins with thanksgiving. He begins that prayer that way for the Ephesian Christians, which, as I said, runs all the way to the end of the chapter to verse 23. And so the prayer begins by giving thanks for the report that he has heard about the believers in Ephesus. So what has he heard? Well, it says he's heard about their faith and their love, that these things were actually being lived out. You see, true living faith is not silent, and it is not inactive. It reaches out, it influences, it builds the body of Christ, it promotes community. Real faith does. And so Paul gives thanks for their love for all of God's people. Paul is not suggesting here some kind of compromising of the truth of God's word. But heard what he is saying. I think he's telling us that truth without love doesn't do anybody a bit of good. Church, together we discover our hearts. Together we discover God's will for our lives. Together we experience his working amongst us and through us. You need the body of Christ and the body of Christ needs you. Now, please also notice something that I think is really quite interesting here. You see, when Paul prays, it's like he's saying, because you people at Ephesus understand the big picture, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for God's people, I am motivated to pray for you. Why and who do you pray for? Here's what I mean by this. Let me illustrate it this way. When was the last time you were in a Christian gathering, maybe like this, or in a Bible study, and prayer requests were being mentioned? When was the last time you heard somebody say, I have a prayer request, could we please pray for so-and-so because God is really, really blessing that person? (laughs) Because they're doing really, really good. When was the last time? I can't remember ever hearing that. Right? Right. Typically, we have the tendency to pray for those who are hurting, for those who are going through tough times, difficulties, tragedies. And rightfully so. Don't get me wrong. Rightfully so. But here Paul is speaking about and showing us another side of prayer when he says, when I heard about how well you're doing, how good you're getting along, how you are putting Christ on display and reflecting him, I was moved to pray for you. I think we need to learn from Paul and pray for people who are doing well, don't you? And here's why. I think you all know this already. Satan doesn't use and pull out his heavy artillery on the ones out there getting drunk or abusing drugs or, you know, um, indulging in their flesh. No, he doesn't need to worry about them. He's got them. He saves it for those who are walking with the Lord, loving the saints. Believing in displaying Jesus. 
How often have we seen strong people go down hard? Unfortunately, we have, haven't we? But what if other believers would have come alongside them, been a shield around them, a blessing for them by following the example of Paul and prayed for them while they were doing good? What if? And please don't miss when Paul prays in this way. It's not every once in a great while. He does it all the time. It's continual. Next, we want to see the purpose of the prayer. It starts with thanksgiving, and then in verse 17, we see the purpose of the prayer. It says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So what is the purpose? For us to know who Christ truly is. But notice that Paul realizes that that can't be done on our own. It's like if we're going to get to know God better, we're going to have to let God do it. Because <laughs> on our own, we're in big trouble, right? You see, when you and I made the decision to follow Jesus, we did more than just agree to a new code of conduct. We became permanently connected to the source above all sources, to the authority above all authorities, to the name that is above all names. So, how do we get to know better the one whose name is above all other names? The same way we get to know anybody better. We spend time with them. Amen? Amen. So Paul prays that the Father would give the believers a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they, so that we may know him better. The blessing of wisdom and understanding was mentioned back in verse 8, if you recall that, when we were there. Paul is here providing, I think, further explanation. You see, wisdom involves seeing the world from God's perspective, not through our own lenses, not through our culture, not through any other than His perspective, Heaven's perspective, as well as the practical ability to act on what one knows and believes. Revelation is God letting you experience himself and his truth. Paul referred to it here as guiding one into God's truth and God's way of living. Do you want wisdom? Do you want revelation? Hopefully, we all long for instruction and insight in knowing how we should walk and talk and what we should do and where we should go. But notice what Paul tells us. It is so simple, really. He says that the wisdom and revelation you and I so desperately need and hopefully desire is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the only place. Some of you might recall that in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we find that Peter and John found that to be true. 
The singular explanation for their ability to address the multitude boldly as well as intelligently was the acknowledgement by those who were watching. They could tell that they had been with Jesus. Woo! May that be said of us. Amen. We're often held back by a limited view of who God is. It's impossible to rise above your situation if you're not fully convinced that God is bigger than your situation. <laughs> it's impossible to experience power over the darkness in your life, the darkness of fear or doubt or sin and addiction if you're not convinced, fully convinced, that God has the power and the desire to deliver from the darkness, all of them. It's impossible to experience the abundant life if you're not fully convinced that Jesus came to give you abundant life. In order to fully experience God, folks, you have to know him through both wisdom and revelation. We can enjoy. We are intended. God has made available so we can enjoy a fuller understanding of who our Heavenly Father is and who He wants to be in our lives. When that happens, we're no longer walking around in life clueless. Instead, we see through things, understand things. We begin to grasp God's perspective on the world. And the result, with great willingness, we submit to his authority, and we trust in his promises. For our God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, isn't he? Let's read on verse 18 in the first part of 19 now. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul also prays for the ultimate result of the knowledge he's been talking about. So what does Paul mean by the eyes of your heart? What does he mean by that? One insightful commentator puts it like this. The heart in Scripture is the seat of all thought and moral judgment, as well as of feeling. This deep interior enlightenment provided by the Holy Spirit leads the believer to realize all that God has made available to them. I don't know about you, but I call that really good news. <laughs> He's done all he can, folks, for us to be able to understand faith and God and what this Christianity is all about and how we're to live. In other words, the imagery of the eyes of the heart pictures an ability to see the reality of our hope and truth about our future. 
Paul specifies some things that he wants us to know with our enlightened eyes of the heart. Spiritual realities that form the core of our faith. First of all, he talks about the hope to which he has called you. Throughout scripture, the word hope always refers to that which is coming, to that which is out ahead of us. Could it be that the single greatest problem some Christians have is that they don't know the hope of God's calling? They don't know the reality of heaven. Consequently, they constantly strive for material things and are continually caught up in carnal pursuits, often depressed and discouraged, all because they don't see nor do they understand the big picture of eternity. Secondly, Paul wants us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. This inheritance includes all God has given to us in salvation, all God has given to us in salvation and through the person and work of Jesus our Lord. We've already seen in the last section that believers have received what we refer to as a down payment by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? Let's talking about that. We're sealed, it says, right? We even refer to it as it could be translated as Jesus has placed an engagement ring upon us, promising us full payment when this life is all said and done, when he comes and returns to take us home. The full payment will be lavished upon us, we learned, when we meet Jesus face to face, when he comes back for us. And once again, at that time, when we stand in glory, basking in our eternal inheritance, all of our human limitations, physical diseases and disabilities and our inability to see beyond the fog, as well as emotional baggage, hardships, and handicaps will be put away instantly forever. Hallelujah is right. Now, after showing his purpose for praying, Paul encourages by presenting to us the power of this prayer as it's connected to the living God. Look at the rest of verse 19 on into verse 21 with me. It says, the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in in the one to come. Paul wants us to know the power God demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead and placing him above everything is the exact same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead. Most of you already know you've been around long enough in church and in Bible studies that this word power here in the Greek is the word dunamis, from which we get our word what? Dynamite. That's some explosive power, wouldn't you say? 
And he says, that's the very same power that I am making available to you so that you can live and walk by the Spirit, displaying me, reflecting me, and looking more like Jesus and a little less like you. He's given us dynamite power to be able to do that. He's exercising towards us this power, bringing about the blessings which he has promised to us. The one thing that no man can conquer, Jesus has conquered. The resurrection is the greatest miracle of them all. Would you agree? Because not only does it prove that Jesus is who he said he was, it proves that he has the power that nobody else has ever had, nor ever will have. Whatever forces may be wreaking havoc in your life, folks, remember they're not the ultimate power. They can't control life and death. Only Jesus can. Some folks believe that their life is subject to the power of the economy or the power of their employer or the power of public opinion or the power of our government. None of these have power over anything really that matters with eternal value. None of them have power over death. None of them can take away your eternal destiny. None of them can destroy the life that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. None of them can separate you from God. None of them. He is the ultimate power in the universe. (laughs) That means that he is more powerful than any force, any person, any presence, or anything that has ever been or wants to be at work wreaking havoc in your life. Your enemy, the enemy, right? The enemy has, is no match for his power. Your fears are no match for his power. Your problems, no match for his power. Your sin, no match for his power. He has the power to conquer death. And you want to hear some good news? And through him, and as we get to know him more, you have the power to conquer life. (laughs) Folks, never forget that the greatest evidence of power, God's power, is change. And that God's power is best displayed through our weaknesses. And may I dare say there's no shortage of weaknesses in our lives. Would you agree? Which means there's lots of room for God's strength and power in our lives. When we are rightfully understanding His power, we are rightfully humbled by His greatness. Please don't miss that. It is then that we will be able to give him the rightful place of honor in our lives. And so in light of verse 21, the only thing that will last isn't found in this world, but in a life that is built on hope and the power, but also on the authority of Jesus Christ. 
He is above all else. (laughs) And when we know Christ, when we understand His authority, it becomes easier to submit to His Lordship in our lives. Verse 22 and 23 now. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I don't know if you've thought of it, but you know, the Lord, he could force and demand our honor just simply because of who he is, right? But he doesn't. Instead, his desire is that we would choose to honor him because of who He is and because of what He has done in our lives. In worship, we use phrases like, give Him glory, give Him honor, give Him praise, and rightfully so. But I want to clarify something. We don't do any of this because He needs to get them. We do it because we need to give them to Him because of who He is. When we worship and praise and honor Jesus, it's a privilege because, well, very simply, he deserves it. (laughs) Because of his obedience, God gave Jesus the highest place of honor in all of the universe. And so I'm thinking, maybe you might be thinking this too, if God would do that, then where does that leave us? (laughs) Don't you think we too ought to give him the highest place in our own lives. I think so. I think so. We need to grow in, his, in the knowledge of Christ for this reason. If we truly know him, we can't possibly refuse acknowledging his rightful place in our hearts and in our lives. Nothing is over his head. It tells us everything under his feet. Jesus is in absolute control of any and every situation that comes your way and might, in fact, be the situation that he chooses to use to become the very path that he could come walking into your life, bringing what? Wisdom and revelation of who he is and who we are in Him. There's a story that I want to close with, which I think hopefully will help us better understand our need to have a knowledge of the Lord and not just some knowledge about the Lord. The master musician professor was finally ready to listen to the results of his students' efforts. He had done all that he could to do to to teach them to play the music. Now the time had come for the students to play their own instruments and show how well they have done and how far they've come and what they've learned. One of the students' name was Bill, and he was the top student, very, very talented musician. And he had mastered every note on the difficult, difficult piece of music that he had been given. And he did so with great pride. 
On cue, when it was his turn, he proceeded to show off his talent as the notes flew out of his instrument. And when he had finished, he took a deep breath, looked over at his teacher and asked, Well, what do you think, professor? Did I pass? To Bill's amazement, his professor was not pleased at all. The master musician professor said, yes, you played every note, but you did not play the music. It was all academic, but there was no heart, no passion for what he was doing. The question that leads us to is, has your goal in life been to play all of the notes academically? in trying to know God? Or have you come to the place in your faith journey of wanting to go beyond the notes and play the music from your heart and with a deep passion? Yes, the notes we play are an important part, but how we play them is the key to knowing God. We must go beyond a technical checklist and pursue the knowledge of God for one very simple reason, because we love Him and want to really know Him more and more and more with each and every day, continuing to enhance the greatest connection being made available to us ever. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning and we want to say thank you for this letter that Paul has written called Ephesians. We are thankful, God, that we have been seen and reminded and learning that there is indeed a plan. It is your plan. Nothing's going to stop it. Nothing is going to frustrate it. Nothing is going to do anything to it to stop it. It will roll on. And you have made us, as those who have put our faith in you, a part of that plan. You've got this. You've got us. You are for us. And Lord, now you've also showed us, through this second half of chapter 1, all that you've made available to us. And how you really do. It is your desire that we would come to know you. Not just about you. Not just have knowledge and facts rolling around up here in our heads. But something that would move down into our hearts and be lived out. That is your desire, Lord. And I pray that we take that seriously this day. And for every day from this point on. May we look more like you. May we walk with you. May we come to know you in a very close and personal kind of way. It's what you want. May we want it as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I